0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Highway One podcast. My name's Jeff, and thank you for joining me. This podcast is dedicated to all the clubs and musicians throughout Canada. We are all connected by our kinship to this great country, our love of music, and our shared musical experiences along Canada's own Trans Canada Highway. Signed or unsigned, original or tribute act, this podcast is all about their stories. Some of the musicians you might have heard of, most you will have not. What you see on stage is often only part of the story. Their experiences are real, and when it comes to live music, anything can happen. So sit back and enjoy these tales from Canada's Highway 1. Please be advised, this episode contains profanity, expletives, and cuss words generally used by sailors on shore leave. If it ain't dangerous, it ain't rock and roll. In this edition of the podcast, episode number one, I had the pleasure of chatting with Andy Curran. Growing up in the GTA in the 70s and 80s, I was weaned on rock and roll, of which a good portion was can rock. Bands like Rush, Toronto, The Headpins, Max Webster, Red Rider, and Coney Hatch. If you're unfamiliar with this band, I urge you to check out their self-titled debut release. Songs like Monkey Bars, Hey Operator, and Devil's Deck Are three great singles from that record and just the beginning of what has been a great career in music for Andy, including winning a Juno in the early 90s with his solo act. In our conversation, I focused on his early years playing the clubs in and around Toronto, along with Touring Canada with Coney Hatch, playing MLG and opening for the likes of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden and Cheap Trick. Andy was immensely generous with his time and stories, and I thoroughly enjoyed the 30 minutes I had asking my questions and doing my best to get out of the way to let him tell his tales. Without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Curran. Hey, thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate this.
1: Well, I want to thank you for your patience, man. We've had two false starts, and you probably were thinking, this guy's a a flake.
0: No, no. I was thinking you're a musician.
1: Uh, (laughs) That too. Yeah. Yeah. But listen... I, I was happy to hear that you were sympathetic about uh, owning a dog. We got a you know an, a nine year old Bernese mountain dog. She's part of the family. so you know when when things go awry with her, you know, everything stops, right? Like to give you an idea, my wife actually, makes Buddha bowls for her for, for her <laughs> dinner so she's got kibble with rice and then pumpkin on top that's how spoiled she is right yeah so anyway I, I appreciate that the patience man and, and you let me know whenever you want to rock and roll perfect Um,
0: yeah I kind of wanted to get started and I'm curious you came up I, I mean as a kid living in Scarborough in the 70s and the 80s I was aware of Coney Hatch and I, my best friend he had Two older brothers and the oldest was really into Coney Hatch, and that's how I kind of knew about right. you guys. So my question to you is, you know, what kind of scene was going on in the early days for you and Coney Hatch? Like, was there were there places to play in the city for you guys? To play original music, that is.
1: Yeah. You know, Jeff, the um, the scene, I would say the scene leading up to sort of um, 1982 when Coney Hatch got signed the scene prior, like we started probably in the the latter half of 1980, and, and literally in Toronto, I can recall probably more than a dozen gigs just in the GTA. So you could play, you know, you could play in Mississauga, you could play two or three or four venues downtown. There was some that were in the West End, which I would call Ronsetzvales now, then in Scarberia, as you mentioned, we could go out and play the Knob Hill. Um, The scene scene was amazing. I mean, you could the the amount of time we spent on the road. um, and I think that was part of the the reason that we had some success, because we spent so many years touring prior to our first record um and and when i say so many years i talk about two years but right. we were on the road 24 7. so you picture toronto just being sort of the epicenter where as i said you could play easily 12 to 15 gigs in the gta and then you start going across the 401 and up to 400 and then you get into quebec and it was just like you know we were literally playing um you know, Monday Monday to Saturday. Sunday was the drive day to the next one. So, uh, quite a lot of um, experience playing to very little people and packed houses. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And 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 sorry, the latter yeah. part of your question about original music. Yeah. Um, it was tough to break in with all original music right off the start, right off the start. So um, ironically, I know I'm wearing an ACDC shirt, uh, and and it fits in with the story. But ironically, we became known for covering ACDC. So we would throw in a lot of ACDC from Highway to Hell, um, and earlier from Let There Be Rock and stuff like that. And then we would start putting in our own original stuff. And And I would say, on any given night we would probably play five or six original tunes but the majority of it was covering scorpions acdc we would put in ramones rolling stones joe walsh um y- you name it whatever was popular at the time uh, uh, uh being played on radio we were doing a coney hatch version of that right and then, and then we'd slip in an original song and then it slowly started to get more originals and less cover songs, you know, but right. you couldn't survive without playing cover songs back then.
0: No kidding. Well, yeah. that's kind of what I heard. So, you know, in, in a bunch of the interviews that I've heard, or sorry, I've done, um, the conversation has been this in the early eighties in Toronto, uh, this is where I'm from and you are from, um, it was mostly cover bands, right? And perhaps that right. was, the, that was the case across the country. Yeah. And it wasn't until the late '80s when original music was finally accepted um, in music in bars across the country, where bands could actually tour the country playing original music. So, but that had to have started somewhere, and that's why I'm picking on you and Coney Hatch because yeah. I like yeah. you guys were doing that. You guys were cutting across the country on the Transcan in the early days, and yeah. you somebody had to have been paving that way.
1: You know, to it, it was interesting because I can remember certain very early Coney Hatch gigs, like um for instance I remember playing in Winnipeg and we would have played um you know, it, it changed from us arriving in a club and playing from Monday to Monday to Saturday night and then the Sunday was off and drive to the next city, right? And then um the dynamics kind of changed the more popular we got then we would do a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday or a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. But occasionally, we would go to a place in in some I, I vividly remember playing Winnipeg. And we were in there for the full week. But then we were the opening band for Matt Minglewood on a Thursday or a Friday night. He was the recording act. Yeah. We were the cover act coming through. Um, and there were instances where there were sort of recording acts in there, but they were much older than Coney Hatch established. Um, and, and then we would be delegated to the opening act for one night. Right. Right. Um, but, but you're right. It, the, it it wasn't till probably the mid eighties where the recording acts were coming in. And by that time we were just doing a single night, maybe two nights, we would play a couple nights we would do Tony's East and then Tony's West. Um, But by the time our first record came out, we would never have played more than a single night in a club because we were sort of like the recording act at that point.
0: Right. Do you remember your first gig?
1: Um, Well, you you had that as one of the questions. My (laughs) first gig, ironically, was not with Coney Hatch. And it's it's a very cool story. So um, there was a friend of mine who said he, th- he, he called me up and he's a guitar player who was actually the original guitar player in Coney Hatch and, and by the time we put out the record um, he had moved on or we found somebody else his name is Tim Broyd and Tim uh, and I went to school at together at De La Salle an all-boys school in uh, at Avenue Road in St. Clair he's an awesome guitar player um, played like Johnny Winter but also loved punk rock and, and if you could that was kind of a weird dynamic okay wait you're, you're you play exactly like Johnny Winter but you love punk rock so he said, hey, dude, we can get a gig opening up for Teenage Head, but we have to play punk rock. <laughs> and I liked punk rock, too. So I was like, this sounds great. I said, who's in the band? He said, well, there's a uh, there's a newspaper writer for the Toronto Sun. His name is Jonathan Gross, and he has um, a column. And he's putting together a band called The Deadlines, a play on the fact that he was like a writer, right? And we were playing, I think we played Ramones and Eddie and the Hot Rods and a few, I can't even remember. It was all punk rock. And we opened up for Teenage Head at Larry's Hideaway. <laughs> Unculted, and, I was, yes. and, I, and I was a big Teenage Head fan, right? So Teenage Head, were doing a three or four night stand at Larry's Hideaway, which was a complete dump. If anybody <laughs> had ever been there, it was the ultimate dive bar, right? And I didn't care. I was like, Oh my God, we're playing our, I'm playing my first ever show in, in front of like legitimate club show. Right. Uh, there was a few sort of what I would call playing in people's basements and stuff like that, but that one was the first real one. And anyway, we went over. Okay. Larry's Hideaway was completely packed, but I vividly remember when the teenage head took the stage and you have to picture that room, just wall to wall people. They start the song. Frankie Venom's up front doing his thing and this guy comes out and and runs to the stage and punches Frankie Venom in the face, knocks him flying back into the drum kit. (laughs) The band doesn't stop playing at all. (laughs) He's he's lying on the drum kit and they're plowing this punk rock. The bouncers grab this guy and turf him out and Frankie gets on the mic and says you're just mad because I screwed your chick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they and he just went and they finished and I was like, oh my God, right? Uh, we only ever played one show. Um, Tim and I went on to, like I said, form Coney Hatch and um, play a few other shows. But that was my, f- and I still have the poster um, from, I, I wish I had it to show you, but uh, I kept the poster from when the deadlines opened up for Teenage Head at Larry's Hideaway. That's a killer story. I was the bass player. <laughs> I didn't sing at all. <laughs> that is Awesome yeah
0: so you've also played maple leaf gardens twice
1: twice oh my god dude that was okay i i have to i have to sort of tee up the maple leaf Gardens story for you because um not not only am i a musician but a a massive massive music fan i mean i um from the age of probably like my sisters my older sisters and brothers got me into the beatles they got me into the stones uh they had Mamas and Papas records. Um, they were listening to Bubblegum, like um, Yummy Yummy. I got Love and I Tell Me, all that kind of stuff. And I would play the tennis racket, and they would be the go-go girls, right? And and so they got me into into music at a really early age. My older brother, Mike, loved Johnny Winter and told me that Edgar Winter was coming to town and I loved Frankenstein. So I, I bought tickets for Edgar Winter at Maple Leaf Gardens with the bad, bad Company was opening. They were the opening act that night. I'd never even heard of Bad Company, right? And I have to say, Jeff, at that moment, that whole experience of seeing Frankenstein and Freeride and Edgar Winter with the lights and the pyro and everything, I was like, I want to be in a band I have to be in a band. That one day I'm going to play Maple Leaf Gardens. That, that was my dream. I mean, I saw Van Halen there. I saw um, Super Tramp. The list just goes on and on. of The amount of shows Rush every New Year's Eve, I'd go see Rush there. And so to actually finally arrive there and play not once but twice in one year, it was just blew my mind, just completely blew my mind. I remember writing a little thank you note to our manager, Ray Daniels, and it said something like, Thank you for making a dream come true, a kid's dream come true. I, I never thought I'd ever play at Maple Leaf Gardens. But the first time was with Judas Priest. I want to say maybe like September or October of 82. And then that year, we also played with Saga and um, Kim Mitchell for New Year's Eve. No kidding. Yeah, there was a there was a cool like backstage party after we threw a little um, party at the Hot Stove Club. Yeah, um, when we when we played with um, Judas Priest, invited our parents and our family and everything and just kind of hung out and drank at the Hot Stove Club and um, and I'd seen so many hockey games there. I'm a, a crazy, you know, Blackhawks fan and seen uh, so I lost count of how many games I saw at Maple Leaf Gardens and Carl Dixon and I are both huge hockey fans, so when we were on tour with um with the various bands, whether it be Judas Priest or Iron Maiden or the other shows, it would be like, oh, my God, we're playing Joe Louie where the, where where Detroit played or we're playing the Metropolitan Center where the Minnesota North Stars played. And it was all about hockey. And we'd get there early and take pictures around and look at all the, you know, try to get into the dressing rooms. Everything was about hockey, right? <laughs> yeah, but it, but that, that was quite a pinch me moment, like just to – for a Toronto – like a Mississauga kid, but I yeah. consider myself a Toronto boy to to actually – get to play maple leaf gardens um you know play i got to play cne stadium but the, the only venue sadly i never got to play was was um, massey hall and, and i saw a lot of shows at massey i you know never say never i might we might yeah. get a get it offered to play there again but that that's one of my favorite venues in, in the city that we've never played yet yeah
0: i love it yeah um when you did your first tour across canada with Coney Hatch, were you guys in a van or were you guys in a bus? Maybe you guys were in a, <laughs> a, a, uh, a an El Camino. I don't know.
1: <laughs> a combi- combination of all of those, uh, Jeff. So uh, when we toured in what we like to affectionately call the peanut butter days, that was when we were living on peanut butter and beer and <laughs> um, eggs and, you know, like just like junk food, right? When we toured in Coney Hatch, then we had a pimped out, I always think it's like a 19. Dave Ketchum, the drummer, owned like a 1979 Econoline van, and we had like shag carpet in it with beds and the bubble windows on the side with an eight-track in it and stuff like that. Right? Did so it have I a barbarian
0: was, on the side of the of the have, uh, van? <laughs> no
1: paint. No painting on the side. But but uh, Shelsky, Steve Shelsky's dad was a carpenter, so we pimped it out one day and then put beds and captain seats in it and stuff like that. And then and then our crew went in a in a you know like a cube van or a five ton truck or something like that. But we had a van we eventually moved up to a winnebago we never we never had a tour bus we were traveling in a winnebago and when we were on the iron maiden tour they made so much fun of us <laughs> that we were touring they would call us like the camper the camping guys oh here's the, the canadian hosers they're coming in in their winnebago right um we didn't care it had a bad and it was much better than a van um but uh for the most part it was you know like the coolest Winnebago that we could get because the tour buses were so expensive. Right. And, um, so we never quite got there to the tour bus stage.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Um, I did an interview with a guy by the name of Steve Fall. He's a local musician in the city, music educator. He toured the country close to 20 times in a band called acid test, which was on Geffen records, uh, and on. And one of the things he had mentioned, which I thought was so appropriate was like the vastness of the country itself. Right. It's so huge and it's amazing that you can actually tour coast to coast on the Trans Canada Highway and hit all the major cities with one highway. Yeah. But it's, you know, it could be 16 hours between one city to the next. So, though that time period in between those cities can make or break a band. So, what kinds of things did you do to entertain yourself or entertain the guys in the band to like pass that time and keep yourself from yeah. like, keep keep yourself from smacking that other guy
1: yeah well you know what you brought up a really good point about um the vastness of canada and um you know even that trek to get to manitoba it didn't unless you've done that you never realize how far up you have to go up north and then start cutting across through kenora and um like long (laughs) lack and hearst and and all that stuff right um the, the great part about it is, you know, when somebody says, you know, Andy, have you ever seen the Northern Lights? And we lost track of how many times we got to see that it's such a beautiful sight at 6 a.m. when you're wired and you've played all night and you're just driving and, and uh, or you'll see a family, a moose run across the road. Um, so getting to see our country uh and and i'm talking about everything from the prairies which is completely barren and many times we had to stop and um because the gas stations weren't even open and you're you so you'd be like okay uh, it's not like today where you had cell phones or anything and and you'd be like there's no way we're gonna make it through the night so we're gonna pull over sleep in a gas station wait till they wake up gas up and then get through the prairies um going through the rockies is spectacular um going out east you know, as far as PEI, back in the day, we had to take a, a ferry over. They didn't have the, 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 bridge. the bridge built yet. But to answer your question, you know, um, and we're dating ourselves here. Obviously, I had a cassette Walkman and then that moved up to the, the CD Walkman. So it killed many, many hours. And then we would have a pimped out system in the van, too. And we had this thing where it was the honor system. So let's say... I was driving, I get to choose what what the house music is in the van, right? So I'd, I'd have like Saxon or Crocus or Judas Priest or something, you know, driving them nuts. But the next guy that was driving, he got to choose what was on deck. So we always had this on deck thing. So I'd be driving and then somebody would slide the CD up and go, okay, that's what's on deck, you know. And I was thinking about Barry Connors and, and he, w- he, he was our second drummer and he would always put the tubes or you know, like Roger Glover's solo album. And we're like, really, dude, Roger (laughs) Glover's solo album again, right? But a lot of times when we were on tour, the label reps from each, each town, so when we would get into Winnipeg, you know, we'd meet a guy and he'd take us to the radio stations and he'd be like, hey, guys, what music do you want? So they would always lay us on free albums that were on Capitol Records or whatever label we were on at the time. So I would say, first and foremost, the music would kill the time. Um, I, I used to r- like to write lyrics a lot. So I just had a little pad that I would, I would, I would just have my headphones on or, or just to block out the noise. And I'd write down little things in my head. Um, we played a lot of, of, of card games and poker. Um, no, euchre? The then, uh, <laughs> no, 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 it was mostly poker. Um, and. And that was a different time. So in the Winnebago, no problem cracking open the booze, the whiskey. The, the, like we were drinking in there. Anything goes back in the 80s, right? We never, yeah. like the guy who was driving wouldn't be doing it. But right. um, anything that we didn't drink on the rider the night before was being consumed in the Winnebago at the poker table with music blaring. Um, <laughs> I think we drove Carl nuts, which eventually forced him to quit the band because we were relentless with the entertainment. I mean, it didn't matter if it was two o'clock in the morning and we had just loaded out, the tunes were going on, the food, the booze, anything that we didn't consume at the gig <laughs> was gone. And so, you know, it, it, unless you had earplugs, you were in for the night. It was part of the ritual. Right? And, um, I definitely got heated. There was some you know some pretty tense moments in there where um, I have to be honest, there was definitely a few fistfights erupting from the the debauchery that was happening that was self-inflicted in the band <laughs> <laughs> okay. or the Winnebago, but um, I don't know too, I don't know too many bands that didn't uh, didn't fight, but we, we,
0: it's like a marriage.
1: I've got three brothers and we were constantly you know battling and punching each other out but we were best friends the next day um so yeah they, i i would think at, at any given point whatever drove somebody over the line would provoke a potential fistfight in the parking lot at when we arrived at the hotel <laughs> or taking the keys out uh i can remember one member whose name will go unmentioned on this interview just had enough pulled over to the side of the road, put it in park, took the keys out, just started walking down the road. And we were, <laughs> like, and we were like, shit, what are we going to do now? We got, we got no keys. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're in like the middle of Missouri or something like that. So our road manager was sleeping in the back and, and we went tapped him on the shoulder. We went, Neil, Neil. Um, member x took the keys and and he's gone and without even like he was still asleep and he's feeling around for his briefcase and he opened it up and then he just handed us a spare set of keys and closed <laughs> it so i've been there like, and done it, this it was like a scene from spinal tap we're driving down the road telling him come on get in he's like i'm not getting in until that guy said he's sorry to me you know so it was full on spinal tap at it's awesome. yeah that is awesome
0: okay so let me get to Your favorite venue or favorite city in the country, followed by the worst.
1: Right. Okay. I don't, you know, I would honestly, I would have to say there's something about crossing into the Quebec border um, and and Quebecers and French Canadians, and there's a totally different vibe uh, as a band and a musician. And it goes far beyond just being a music fan. It's It almost is like a cultural appreciation of the arts. And the French Canadian are very passionate anyway. So we noticed even from the earliest, earliest gigs in the peanut butter days, how appreciative the, the fans were in, in, in Quebec. Um, so not only is it one of my favorite cities to visit when I'm, when I'm not even playing, but certainly to perform there would be Quebec City. Absolutely love it. Had some amazing gigs there back from the early days, straight into uh, the last time we were through there. um, Coney hatch opening up for Steve Harris's British lion. We had some really good show in Montreal and Quebec and their fans are just like the noise level. Um, and the appreciation is just that extra. So by far, those are my, my, my favorite, you know, Montreal and Quebec city. Um, with all due respect to the citizens of Kirkland Lake, (laughs) the worst the worst some i spent a full week there many times playing mostly to drunken old men who did not want to listen to rock and roll and we were playing the local watering hole and um just feeling like oh my god what are we doing here man like just um just a barren wasteland of (laughs) uh, i don't know like it's an old mining town and and it's they had come and gone there was nothing to do up there bored out of your minds um played to you know there was a few rock and roll fans but it was it, it was just sort of like your manager would root you through these godforsaken towns to get up to where you want to go so whether it's you know and i'm doing this in in order of hatred probably kirkland lake kappas casing thunder bay um kenora you're just like no this is not what i i, I This is not what my career is about. Why am I here? Right. Um, I do remember one particular God awful uh, gig in Sault Ste. Marie. No word of lie. After I left Coney Hatch, I played a couple solo gigs up there to warm up and get things going on this stage in the middle of the stage the patrons that was the only way that they could get to the men's bathroom or the women's bathroom so i was singing vocals in the middle of the set and had to move aside while the patrons walked across the stage to get to the bathroom (laughs) so let me just say that was a humbling experience after you know putting out three records with coney hatch and touring all over north america and and then going oh my god i'm in Sault Ste. Marie moving my way, my bass neck out of the way so people can go to the bathroom on the stage. It was not whoever, whoever designed that club didn't put a lot of thought in it. But those definitely are, you know, some real stinkers that I remember.
0: Yet another spinal tap moment.
1: (laughs) And I believe, I believe at that gig as well, there was a a couple guys in the front row that were just sitting there doing this to me for most of the show. (laughs) So about two or three songs in, I had had enough of a full week then in Sault saint Marie, and I started calling these guys on. I was like, Do you want me to drop my bass? And let's just go. Why don't you guys come up on stage and we'll just go right now? And our tour manager is talking to me through a mic like that from the soundboard, going, Please do not incite the fans to fight you. Do not. <laughs> and I, I just had enough. I'm like, you know, I'm 150 pounds wet but as my brothers would tell you you know like when it's when it's game on it's game on i don't care who it is it's, maybe it's the hockey player in me yeah. and i was calling these guys on like it's okay, go time let's go and when i guess it's the power of the microphone when you when you intimidate someone like that and go okay tough guys you're calling me on there, giving flipping me the bird let's go and nothing ever happened but the, i got reprimanded after that at that show by our tour manager he said please please don't ask the the, the fans to fight you it's not it's not a good look <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is another awesome story Andy I'm going to give you two more questions and then yeah, I'll let yeah. you go first question uh how many times do you think you've toured Canada
1: oh my god well listen I think Jeff ease easily um from coast to coast easily 10 to 15 times but like you know randomly through the provinces like well into 50 or 60 times Man. across yeah yeah and my what? wife kind of bust bust my balls about it she's like hey let's get a let's get a, a motor home and and go across the country and i'm like dude you have no idea <laughs> I, my eyes just twitch i've done like i love our country but don't, I'll jump on a plane and go with you, but I ain't driving again because I've gone across it and lost track of how many times we went went from end to end on the 401 for sure. Like just wore it out. (laughs) Definitely into the 30s or 40s on that tour. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Last one. Do you have any good stories from your Iron Maiden, Judas Priest or Ted Nugent tours that you can share?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll go through them quickly because I don't want to burn up your time. So Judas Priest, um, you know, when we got on that tour, one of the first things that happened was Rob Halford came into the dressing room and said, hey, want to introduce myself. We're super happy to have you guys on tour. We really like you guys because Devil's Deck was being played quite heavily on MTV. So, um, And I remember him coming in, where's the Coney Hatches? Where are you guys? He was <laughs> super friendly, right? And he said, I'm going to warn you guys. Our fans hate opening acts. They hate them. The thing you have to do is just get through the first three songs. And they're going to throw stuff at you. They're going to be flipping you the bird. They're going to be doing everything they can to intimidate you. But if you can stick in just those first three songs and make it through, you're going to be okay. And that was the best advice he gave us. Because, you know, we followed Saxon. Um, Saxon, where they opened and there were kids with Saxon signs. Wheels of Steel yeah i love wheels i love that band right but coney hatch is not quite as heavy as coney as um saxon so you know when in rome we started dressing in black and playing a lot of our heavier heavier stuff but when we played the the cow palace in san francisco kids were throwing m1 firecrackers at us and for anybody that doesn't know what those are they're literally mini sticks of dynamite we had tennis balls shoes being thrown at us, um, cutlery, um, you name it. So the first thing you know, the, we're, we're just grinding away and pucks and, and bottles and, you know, M1 firecrackers. So I remember that and that was super intimidating. But we lasted and we, and we, we eventually had a good show, right? Um, on, the, on the Iron Maiden uh, tour, we had uh, um, what we thought was going to be the end of the tour, we're going to really get Iron Maiden, we're going to pie them on stage. Um, during their show and there's lots of lots of bands play gags on each other so our road manager caught wind that we were going to pie them we're not only just going to pie them but we had got cat food and we had made pies with cat food and uh, whipped cream on it and the plan was to run on stage and pie each member of Iron Maiden in during their show so he went nuts our tour manager said there's no way you can do this and talked us out of it we went on stage he went and told the guys in Iron Maiden what we were going to do, and they came on and with with all the cat food and pies and got us during our set. Right, <laughs> so we were covered and had to shower and stuff like that. Um, the Nuge and Cheap Trick when we played and that was officially Coney Hatch's first big show, first ever big show at the CNE grandstand, Ooh. and um, and I was a, I am still a huge fan of both bands. Um, didn't get to talk to Nugent, but when he arrived backstage, he had a shiner. He had apparently been, had a hunting mishap and he had a big black eye. Um, I met Rick Nielsen and went over to him and said, Oh man, I have I'm a huge fan, I'm Andy from Coney Hatch, we're opening up and, um, and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah! aren't you guys touring? You're going to you're touring with us in the States. And I said, yeah. And he said, you're going to like the States. There's a lot of pretty women in, in the States. Right. And I remember meeting <laughs> those are the two big moments that from that Nugent Cheap Trick uh, date. Um, still stay in touch with the cheap trip guys, became friends with them. Still one of my favorite bands, but those are little snippets from those, those artists that you mentioned. Brilliant. Ama- amazing memories. It's pretty good considering they were like 82 and 83 and you know, that's a long time ago. My memory is still pretty good.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. Andy, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was, you were fantastic.
1: Well, thank you, buddy. I listened, I, I put you through the ringers uh, so badly by you know rescheduling this thing twice okay. i wanted i wanted to actually do something um pretty cool for you because it, i'm going to give you the debut
0: this is pretty cool dude i'm talking to you
1: <laughs> well i want to i want to show you something so the world has never seen this we are just about to get this going this is the coney hatch live, live at, at the, the elmo combo. yeah so um nobody's ever seen these yet we uh, people ordered them from our website and um I have one here that I wanted to show on your podcast so people could see it. So anyway, so when, if you've ordered this, this is what you'll get. All four members signed in on the bottom. Um, We actually rubber stamped every single copy on that. Um, This is a little thing. You can't really see it, but it says you have number one of 300. On the back, there's a little sticker there that shows the the, the, the actual set list there. And when you pull this guy out and and we want it to go a little bit bootleg, right? So when you pull it out, um, you actually get a little, little flyer in here, a little souvenir flyer. That is the same thing with all the, with all of the, oops, with all of the credits of, um, I don't know if that's backwards. It might be, but anyway, (laughs) um, it, it basically says all the songs we played and then totally old school. You basically have like a white, side a double album anyway nobody's ever seen that jeff so i thought okay you know maybe a little treat a debut on your podcast here to show everybody what they're going to get
0: that's awesome that's awesome thank you man i appreciate that. that's awesome
1: the only the first and hopefully maybe not the last but the first live album we've ever done
0: very cool at the elmo of all places too at
1: the elmo combo yeah wonderful thanks
0: man Appreciate it. My pleasure,
1: buddy. All the best thank to you. you. Thank you for having me
0: on. Thank you for being a part of this. I appreciate it so much.
1: All right, brother. You All the take best. Care. Cheers.
0: This concludes the highway one podcast episode with Andy Curran. I want to thank Andy for graciously donating his time and answering my questions. He was incredibly professional and prepared with great stories to share of his experiences along Canada's Transcan Highway. As an interviewer, I came away feeling both entertained and inspired. Andy, thank you. Production provided by me, Jeff Elliott. Theme music provided by Dave Viva at Locomotion Music in Toronto. If you're a musician, club owner, or just have a tale to share with the Highway 1 podcast, please feel free to contact me at h-w-y-o-n-e canada at gmail.com. I'm your host, Jeff Elliott, and thanks for listening.